This is the Indesa Members Memo, a podcast of the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Indesa is 100% member-owned and is your industry voice. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Indesa Members Memo. My name is Joe McGuire, and I am the Executive Director for the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. And I'm so happy to have you all listening um, to our podcast. I hope you stick with us. Like, subscribe, share. Let's spread the word because we are um, trying to create a community here where we share um, good, accurate, educational information for the drug and alcohol testing industry. Well, today we are going to do part four of our series on all things marijuana and drug testing. And I hope you've been finding this helpful. If you have questions for me, please don't hesitate to email me at joemcguire at indesa.com, J-O-M-C-G-U-I-R-E at N-D-A-S-A.com. And uh, be happy to discuss whatever you would like on the topic. So let's talk today about drug and alcohol testing policies specific to the workplace when it comes to states that have legalized marijuana. So whether it's medical or um, adult use, recreational retail, um, what is an employer to do? Uh, You know, we do see employers that are just removing THC from the panel altogether. Very bad idea. Now, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, clearly you you know that. You agree with that in all likelihood. Um, But you may be having trouble articulating why it's a bad idea. And ultimately, the most common sense logical reason is because that places the employer directly in the line of fire for any liability, culpability, or any type of um, responsibility when there are accidents, injuries, or even fatalities as a result of employee marijuana use. And it does happen. Statistics show us that employees who use marijuana have more accidents and injuries than their counterparts who do not. Uh, They have more absenteeism. They have more uh, turnover rates of leaving jobs and going job to job to job. Um, You know, it's just, it's statistical fact. And, And we have 30 years of data that, that show us uh, this commonality. It's not something that's being made up. It's something that is absolute fact. So if employees can understand the scientific data and evidence um, on the subject, then usually they can recognize, wow, um, that's going to cost me out of my pocket. Uh, Employees who use substances cost small business owners um, a minimum of $7,000 per month in lost revenue. There are some studies that say it's as high as 12000 Of course, it depends on the size of the business, but on average, if you average that out in the United States, um, these are the costs to employers that they're facing. And it, it's substance use in general is costing employers billions of dollars in lost revenue. So if an employer you know, chooses, well, you know, we're just going to take marijuana off the drug panel because it's easier and everybody's going to fail the drug test anyway. And we're not going to have any employees. 
they're just giving in. They're throwing their hands up and giving in to um, the drug culture and essentially letting the drug culture win the day. Um, and I, I know that many of you probably are frustrated with, with clients who take on this attitude or maybe, you know, practice um, of no longer testing for THC. But take heart and remember that this cannot last forever. Be kind, be, um, you know, keep, keep um, education in front of them, be available to them for their other testing needs and understand that when the pain point gets bad enough for them, they will circle back around. We've seen it happen. I've, I've talked to people, um, uh, people in drug testing in the state of Colorado who have had employers who went all the way on the other side of dropping THC for everything. And then accidents, injuries have occurred. Employee laying in the hospital burned over 90% of his body um, from, a, from a fire and tested positive for THC on uh, the post-accident because they, they kept post-accident testing and then went, okay, we've got to put our policies back in place because this is a matter of saving lives. So it will have to come back around. It's just not sustainable long-term. So um, maybe those are some talking points and statistics that are helpful to you. Um, We do have some helps for employers on our website. We've written some white papers. We've put them out there. Um, If you can't find them or you would like to use them, please let me know. I'll send you the PDFs. And um, they're just really simple. We have a frequently asked questions page, um, et cetera. We've got several resources that, that, uh, you can use. So the second thing is increasing the cutoff levels. And I, I think we've talked about this briefly in, uh, in one of our other episodes, but a lot of times employers are saying, let's increase those cutoff levels because now it's legal here. So employees should be allowed to have more in their system, but employers are not toxicologists and they don't know what those cutoff levels mean. And at the end of the day, the really simple, you know, civilian um, uh, kind of explanation of a cutoff level is it rules out secondhand exposure. So a cutoff level typically means this person has an ingested amount that is present in their system that that they um, that they took into their body. So if you increase the cutoff levels. So let's say you go, well, you know, we want to allow employees to now have 100 nanograms of THC in their system rather than 15. And, and again, I've had employers who have done this, um, and I, I have some talked them out of it successfully, and others I have not, and they've just gone down that path. So what happens is, all right, now you have someone who fails the drug screen, Um, maybe they caused an accident or an injury, got hurt at work. Um, you know, maybe it's just harm to themselves, but there they are. They fail a post-accident drug test and you're trying to make a decision. Well, you know, they came off over the, the cutoff level of hundred nanograms. And so now they're positive and they come back to you and say, Oh wait, you know, this is as a result of my, roommate or my spouse using um, cannabis in the house or vaping in the house all the time, and it's not mine. Well, now you can no longer say um, categorically, absolutely, this was your usage. Now you have taken away that 
um, that perfect opportunity to say, no, the drug test verifies that this was your personal use. So employers really shoot themselves in the foot when they do that. And then, you know, you if you end up going to court on a case where you get sued, which is happening frequently these days, um, now you don't have a leg to stand on if you're trying to say, we know this was your use and you were under the influence or not. Um, so bad idea to change the cutoff levels. All right. Um, so when it comes to actual policy helps, these are some things that should be considered in employers who are choosing to change their policies. Um, but when it comes to just simply good old fashioned annual review and updating the policy, or maybe a timely review because laws are changing in your state, um, it is time to, to do some hard work and dig down and really take a look at this living, breathing document that is your workplace drug and alcohol policy, that is um, something that, that should be reviewed on a regular basis. Employers should know where it is, how to access it, and what it says before the emergency occurs, right? Especially when it comes to like a reasonable cause test. The worst thing in the world is when an employer um, has a reasonable cause situation, they send someone in for a reasonable suspicion test, and the DER, the designated employer um, representative, is back at, at home base in the workplace frantic because they have no idea what to do next. I remember one time working with a company and the uh, DER was on vacation and had left someone to stand in her place and was like, you know, it's not that hard. Randoms are coming up this month. Just make sure everybody gets the randoms. I'm going on vacation. And she wasn't just like, you know, at Disneyland, she was in Germany. She was in another country. And one morning, one of their drivers came in, got pulled for a random, uh, came in and blew three times the legal limit on the breath alcohol test after having already been behind the wheel of the passenger vehicle. So we called the company to see um, what steps they wanted to take for, you know, transporting their employee, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they literally just like had this little mini meltdown, did not know what to do. They're like, can you just send him back here? Well, no, we're not going to put him behind the wheel because he's under the influence and um, not a good idea. So you need to send someone over, you know, or send a taxi or an Uber. Are you going to bring him back to work? Does he need to go home? What's good? And they, they just were, it, it was just like pandemonium. You know, we don't know what to do. What does any of this mean? They had no idea. Didn't know what confirmation test. I mean, like the whole thing, they were just um, completely uh, uh, in the dark. Not a good scenario for how they should function. But, you know, um, we see this more often than not, and it is highly problematic. And it, it often is up to us in the drug and alcohol testing industry to work hard to keep these DERs educated. Um, there's job turnover. They're wearing 16 different hats. They may not pay attention to the fact that they must be compliant to 49 part 40. I know you feel this pain. I know that this is a challenge for you as much as it is for the next guy in this whole um, scenario. But at the end of the day, just good reminders. So anyway, they need to know their policy, need to know what it says, where it's at, needs to be fresh, no dust collecting on it. Um, I always say to employers when I'm when I'm doing uh, training, uh, 
you know, the, the last thing that needs to happen is for this to be in a dusty file cabinet somewhere. And it was written 25 years ago and nobody has a clue what it says. I, I said that one time in a policy writing workshop and an employer came up to me with a sheepish look on his face. And he said, that's exactly where our policy is. It's in a dusty file cabinet somewhere. And the owner of the company wrote it 25 years ago and I'm going to find it and I'm going to send it to you so that um, <laughs> you can help me update it. Um, and it was old, <laughs> but uh, we got it taken care of. Okay. So, so uh, they get the policy out. They're looking to review it. Now, um, one of the things, if you're helping your clients do this, I would suggest that you, as a best practice in, in the era of legal marijuana, remove the word impairment as a determining factor for taking action against an employee and replace the word impairment with under the influence. It's not that you can't ever use the word impairment, such as, you know, impairment on the job will not be tolerated. However, the criteria for removing an employee from safety sensitive functions or whatever have you um, is setting a standard that cannot be proven. So here we are, we're in an era where the pro-cannabis lobby very clearly understands that we do not have a test for impairment. Uh, and so they seize upon that and take it as proof that you cannot prove that an employee was a danger or a threat to themselves or someone else. And court cases have been won on this issue by those who support employee marijuana use uh, because employers have tried to say, well, you were impaired at this time. And the attorneys for the defense say, you can't prove that. And then science bears out that there is no test for impairment and bam, the case is lost. So use the term under the influence because um, that can be proven and the drug test can bear that out that they were under the influence at the time. Now, in this day and age, under the influence, um, drug testing must come with documentation uh, that that good old signs and symptoms documentation that you use for reasonable cause testing that should accompany to the best of your ability any type of scenario in which an action is going to be taken against an employee. Again, this is something that has um, weighed out in recent court cases. So make absolutely sure that documentation is following any type of incident. So change the word um, impairment when action needs to be taken to under the influence and don't get caught up in that red herring. Now, I am going to just take a little bit of a rabbit trail here for a second to talk about when will an impairment test um, be ready. A lot of us are perched on the edge of anticipation, waiting for that impairment test, um, the, you know, the um, breath marijuana test to come to fruition. We hear all the time in news reports, it's imminent, it's ready, it's going to happen, and it, the day will be saved because we'll have this impairment test, then it'll be just like breath alcohol and everything will be okay. And the reality of it is, uh, cannabis does not behave um, and cannot be measured in the same way that alcohol can. It's fat-soluble, not water-soluble. 
right? So what does that mean? That means that you are measuring a completely different metabolite in the breath when you take a sample um, to try to capture something measurable in the saliva where alcohol um, resides in that saliva. It, it is water soluble. So you get a good alcohol reading in a breath test, not the same for, for cannabis or THC. Um, here, you know, I've, I've talked to many, many of those who are in the game of coming up with that uh, marijuana breath test. And um, one, one of them gave me this great word picture several years ago. And when I heard it, it just really like it resonated with me so strongly. But before I started repeating it, I went to several other individuals who are working on these tests and asked them, would you say this is accurate? And every time I got a resounding yes, ooh, that's a really good way of describing it. So when we measure breath alcohol, we're measuring parts per liter. So you can take the two liter bottles, um, like soda comes in, you can line them up, how many liters of um, you know, blood are in the body. And then um, when you get that percentage of measurement for breath alcohol, that's your percentage of, of those liters that are filled with alcohol rather than water or blood. Okay. Um, so that's a very accurate description. It's a finite number and it can be easily measured and we've been doing it for years. So if that gives you a visual, however much alcohol is in the body at the moment or in the brain, it's the percentage of those two liters that you line up on the floor. However, when you're measuring THC, scientists say we are looking at eyedroppers of THC in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And some will say, yeah, but it's even bigger than that. Um, but suffice to say, that gives you a good mental picture. I had one person say, no, it's more like grains of sand on a, on a beach. But um, that seems so infinite to me. Um, eyedroppers of, of measurable metabolite in an Olympic size swimming pool. That's what we're trying to narrow down. And so some are, are, you know, containing that into, um, you know, we're getting within, um, four to six to eight to, you know, 24 hours of use. Um, there's claims of all, all of those out there. Um, and, and so it's, it's basically what we're finding is a recent use test. Okay, so we're looking at a recent use test. Is that helpful? Sure, of course it's helpful. It will help employers determine did someone use in the last, I mean, I really think the last um, four to six hours, that's great because you know, um, did they use completely irresponsibly at work or right before work or whatever? Um, so narrowing that down is great, but it is not an impairment test. Um, it doesn't, it still does not prove impairment because of all the arguments in court cases right now that, well, this person is used, you know, every single day for 20 years, therefore they do not get impaired. Well, that's also um, scientifically not accurate, but that's what's winning court cases. That's what juries are believing and that's how decisions are being made. So we're losing that one. All right. So let's go back to the test issue. Um, let's say we get this narrowed down to where we've got this measurable amount. It's within a few hours of use. Um, and let's say that's irrelevant to the impairment test. Fine. Um, do we have now an impairment standard? Well, no, because we don't have a standard. We have no measurable standard for this at all. Um, and, you know, states are creating standards for driving under the influence. 
um, or, or driving while impaired, and they're completely subjective. They're not based on, on the science that is out there that states that individuals can um, have trouble with multi-divided attention tasks and focusing and, and you know, auto-response times with maintaining one nanogram of THC in the brain, one. And that's in blood. That's in whole blood active THC. So what do you do with that? Um, do you think states are going to say, well, you can't even have one nanogram in your system? No. They're not. I can tell you by the state of Colorado said five nanograms sounds, you know, five sounds better than one because one sounds like none. So let's go with five. And then they made it contestable. So you can't win the cases because, again, the attorneys convinced the juries that um, this person is not impaired. We've had people five and six times the legal limit who just walk out of court and completely acquitted and can't get convicted. So this whole thing is still in um, not just infancy stages, it's in embryonic stages for trying to come up with an impairment test. So if you or your clients are waiting and you know, you're just trying to put all of this on hold until there's an impairment test, um, it's a very bad idea because that's not going to happen anytime soon. Most of the experts in our industry say it's 10 years away and some say it will absolutely just never happen. So um, that's another thing that, that you just can't hinge, um, you know, making a decision on decisions need to be <clears throat> made now and the, the right thing must be done to protect safety first. All right, so let's go back to the policy. Okay, so um, that's why we're going to um, take a hard look at that word impairment, and we're going to make some real decisions there uh, and and uh, look at under the influence, look at documentation, etc. Now, some states, and this is very important to note, some states are changing laws about what types of tests can be done. Some are scrutinizing pre-employment tests. Has the offer been made? You can't do it pre-offer, um, this and that. Many states have uh, laws on the books about discrimination, um, discriminating against a, quote, medical marijuana card holder. You must know your state laws. You must be compliant with your state laws, and you must be compliant with them in your policy in every state in which you do business. So that's something that is extremely important. And there are experts in our industry who help with that. So make sure that um, if you don't know those resources, you reach out to Indesa, we can make some referrals. But knowing state laws and writing policies is incredibly important. Now, what does it mean not to discriminate against an employee who holds a medical marijuana card? Um, I think we've talked about that before uh, in the medical marijuana episode. Do not treat them any differently than you treat anybody else. Follow your policies. Don't single them out. Don't. It, so basically, what that means is, if you uh, or an employer um, discovers that someone is a quote medical marijuana card holder, you can't just single them out and fire them for holding the card they still must follow the workplace policies. They still must behave safely. Um, they cannot put safety at risk or in jeopardy or whatnot. Um, they must perform as, as they should have performed, but you can't just single them out and fire them simply because of the knowledge of they, they have that you know state-issued card. Uh, so that's really where the discrimination comes down. And it's, it's pretty simple, um, not a big mystery, but we, we make all these things much more difficult than they are, right? 
Um, so know the state laws, make sure a policy is abiding by those um, very specifically. And, and know that at this point in time, October 2020, um, all states can uh, do still allow drug testing for THC. Nobody has banned it. It's not illegal anywhere, no matter what you may have heard. Um, it is allowable. Just make sure that those tests are being conducted within the proper parameters that some states have set. And, um, and, and if you have any questions on that, again, um, just let me know. So uh, an, the last thing that I want to address on policy helps are, I think that we are also very much in an age where zero tolerance is um, on the periphery of uh, extincts or extinction. So, uh, you know, when I was really in the throes of writing policy um, and evaluating policies about 10 years ago, I was a hundred percent zero tolerance girl. I, you know, you were not going to tolerate anything less than, you know, absolute zero. Uh, but in this day and age, you know, it's, it's just, that's not the way that it is these days. Um, especially in states where there's legal marijuana. Employers need to take a look at second chances and options for um, helping people get evaluated and return to work um, and uh, follow-up testing, <clears throat> random testing programs, and, and solutions for teaching their employees that this is the boundary and we value you, we want you here, we want you to keep your job, but safety is first. Safety comes before your legal, you know, right to use drugs in your state. And um, we don't want to lose you. So we're going to give you this opportunity to show us that you're going to stick to the rules, but we're going to test you. And also, again, you've heard me say it before many times. We're going to say it again. Watch out for that cheating because this is the scenario in which cheating gets rampant. So uh, watch out for drug test cheating. Make sure that you have integrity of the test, um, but send a clear message. This is an opportunity for employers to hold the line, to um, create a culture of safety, and and to have zero tolerance within the boundary of we're going to give you an opportunity to learn the lesson, um, and then if you don't, you're going to have to move on. And it, because employee turnover is expensive and it's painful and it's um, you know, people do make mistakes. There are situations where people are unknowing about CBD. Um, they get dosed by, uh, you know, neighbors who prank one another. We've had many cases in Colorado where people go to a um, neighborhood barbecue and someone doses whatever, the apple pie, the barbecue sauce, the you name it. THC is in everything out here. And um, people get dosed and they are, you know, horrified because they um, would have never used on their own. These things happen. Um, you know, that that's probably not why the majority of people are failing their drug test in any way, shape or form, but things happen. So it, it's an opportunity to, um, to extend some grace and to find ways to keep people at work and productive and teach them boundaries. So um, those are some things that I put out there for policy helps. I hope that um, this has been, uh, you know, helpful to you in your day-to-day -day work. Again, I welcome questions and uh, would love to circle back and address this with you in any way that you need. Um, one thing I'll say is we've done a four-part series on cannabis. 
I'm going to take a break from this and we're going to go to some other topics in the weeks ahead. Um, but if I get a lot of feedback on this, we may continue the conversation and do more episodes. Uh, I know this is always a hot topic and there, you know, we could really talk about this for probably um, 12 hours. <laughs> Won't do that to you, but um but I do get that it's a it's a bigger, bigger topic, and hopefully breaking it down this way has been helpful. So um, next time we're going to hear from George Gilpatrick on um, uh, some very important issues to testing that I think you will find interesting. So make sure you turn, tune in. Um, don't forget to like us wherever you listen. Make sure that you subscribe. That way the notices will pop up each week when there's a new episode and you, it'll automatically download into your podcast app. Thank you again for being here. We appreciate and value you. Remember that Indesa members matter. And if you haven't joined us, go to our website, www.indesa.com. That's N-D-A-S-A.com. And click the membership tab and look at the benefits um, we are the voice of the drug and alcohol testing industry, and we'd love to have you join our family. Thanks so much, y'all. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Indesa Members Memo. Subscribe to hear all of our podcasts and join Indesa to access all of our professional industry resources. Visit us at ndasa.com.